Chapter Thirteen of the Hampstead Mystery. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Lars Rolander. The Hampstead Mystery by John Watson and Arthur Rees. Chapter Thirteen. Doris Fanning got off a Holborn tram at King's Cross, and with a hasty glance around her as if to make sure she was not followed, walked at a rapid pace across the street in the direction of Caledonian Road. She walked up that busy thoroughfare at the same quick gait for some minutes then turned into a narrow street and with another suspicious look around her stopped at the doorway of a small shop a short distance down the shop sold those nondescript goods which seemed to afford a living to a not inconsiderable class of london's small shopkeepers the windows and the shelves were full of dusty old books and magazines trumpery curious and cheap china second-hand furniture and a collection of Michelinus odds and ends. A thick dust lay over the whole collection, and the shop and its contents presented a deserted and dirty appearance. Moreover, the door was closed, as though customers were not expected. The girl tried the door and found it locked, a fact which seemed to indicate that customers were not even desired. After another hasty look up and down the street, she tapped sharply on the door in a peculiar way. The door was opened after the lapse of a few minutes by a short, thick-set man over fifty, whose heavy face displayed none of the suavity and desire to please, which is part of the stock-in-trade of the small shopkeeper of London. A look of annoyance crossed his face at the sight of the girl and his first remark to her was one which no well-regulated shopkeeper would have addressed to a prospective customer. "'You!' he exclaimed. "'What in God's name has brought you here? I told you on no account to come to the shop. How do you know somebody hasn't followed you?' "'I could not help it, Kincher,' the girl responded piteously. I'm distracted about Fred, and I had to come over to ask your advice. You women are all fools, the man retorted. You might have known that I would read all about the case in the papers, and that I'd let you hear from me. Yes, Kincher, she replied humbly, but they let me see Fred for a few minutes yesterday at the police court, and he told me to come over and see you. Oh, if you only knew what I've suffered since he was arrested. Yesterday he was committed for trial. I haven't closed my eyes for over a week. So you attended the police court proceedings, said Kemp. And when the girl nodded her head, he went on. The more fool you. I suppose it would be too much to expect a woman to keep away even though she knew she could do no good. I knew that, Kincher, but I simply had to go. I should have died if I had stayed in that dreadful flat alone. I tried to, but I couldn't. 
I got so nervous that I had to put my handkerchief into my mouth to prevent myself from screaming aloud. Well, since you are here, you'd better come inside instead of standing there and giving yourself and me away to every passing policeman. He led the way inside, and the girl followed him to a dirty, cheerless room behind the shop, which was furnished with a sofa bedstead, a table, and a chair. It was evident that Kemp lived alone and attended to his own wants. The remains of an unappetizing meal were on a corner of the table, and a kettle and a teapot stood by the fireplace, in which a fire had recently been made with a few sticks for the purpose of boiling a kettle. Bedclothes were heaped on the sofa bedstead in a disordered state, and in the midst of them nestled a large tortoise-shell cat. "'Sit down,' said Kemp. There was an old chair near the fireplace, and he pushed it towards her with his foot. "'What's brought you over here?' The girl sank into the chair and began to cry. "'I can't help it, Kincher,' she said. "'I don't know what to say or do. Fancy Fred being charged with murder.' Oh, it's too dreadful to think about, and yet I can think of nothing else. Crying your eyes out won't help matters much, replied the unsympathetic Kemp. The girl did not reply, but rocked herself backwards and forwards on the chair. She sobbed so violently that she appeared to be threatened with an attack of hysteria. Kemp watched her silently. The cat on the sofa bedstead, as if awakened by the noise, got up, yawned, looked inquiring round, and then, with a measured leap, sprang into the girl's lap. She was startled by his act, and then she smiled through her sobs as she stroked the animal's coat. "'Poor old Peter!' she exclaimed. "'He wants to console me. Don't you, Peter?' "'I say, Kinshire. I wish you'd give me, Peter. You don't want him. Oh, look at the dear. The cat had perched himself on one of her knees to beg, and he sawed the air appealingly with his forepaws. I must give him a titbit for that. She eyed the remains of the meal on the table disdainfully. No, Peter, there is nothing fit for you to eat, positively nothing. "'Why, he understands me like a human being,' she continued in amazement, as the huge cat dropped on all fours and deliberately sprang back to the sofa bedstead. "'I say, Kincher, you really want a woman in this place to look after you? It's in a most shocking state. It's like a pigsty.' Kemp made no reply, but continued to watch her. Her tears had vanished and she sat forward with her dark eyes sparkling, one hand supporting her pretty face as she glanced round the room. "'Have you a cigarette?' she asked suddenly. Kemp went into the shop and came back with a packet of cheap cigarettes. The girl pushed them away petulantly. "'I don't like that brand,' she said. "'Haven't you got anything better?' The man shook his head. "'No? Then here goes. I must have a smoke of some sort.' She stuck one of the cheap cigarettes daintily into her mouth. 
a match, Kincher. Why, the box is filthy. You must have a woman in to look after you, even if I have to find you one myself. I don't want a woman in the place, retorted Kemp. There is no peace for a man when a woman is about. But let us have no more of this idle chatter. What brought you over here? I suppose it's about Fred. Poor Fred! The girl looked downcast for a moment. Then she tossed her head, puffed out some smoke, and exclaimed energetically, But he's not guilty, Kincher, and we'll get him off, won't we? Not merely by saying so, replied Kemp. But you'd better tell me how it came about that he was arrested for the murder. The police gave away nothing at the police court. Bill Dobbs was down there, and he told me they let out nothing, except that their principal witness against Fred is that fellow Hill. I always knew he'd squeak. I told Fred to have nothing to do with the job. The girl's eyes flashed viciously. She tossed the cigarette into the fireplace and straightened herself. "'That's the low, dirty scoundrel who committed the murder!' she exclaimed. "'He ought to be in the dark, not Fred!' "'Was Fred up there that night?' asked Hemp. "'Up where?' "'At Riversbrook, or whatever they call it.' "'Yes.' "'He told me he didn't go.' "'It's because he was up there that the police have arrested him,' said the girl. "'Hill gave him away. Oh, he's a double-dyed villain, is Hill, and so quiet and respectable-looking with it all. He used to let me in when I went to Riversbrook and let me out again, and pocket the half-crowns I gave him. And I, like a fool, never suspected him once, or thought that he knew anything about Fred coming to the flat.' He didn't let it out till the night Sir Horace quarrelled with me. Sir Horace found out about, about Fred, and when I went up to see him as usual, he told me that he had finished with me, and he called Hill up to show me out. Show this young lady out, he said, in that cold, haughty voice of his. And the vilely old villain Hill just bowed and held the door open. He followed me downstairs and let me out at the side door. There, he said, I'll escort you to the front gate, if you will permit me, miss. I usually lock the gate about this time. I thought nothing of this because he had come with me to the front gate before. He followed me down the garden path through the plantation till we reached the front gate. He opened the gate for me, and I said, "'Good night, Hill.' But instead of his replying, Good night, Miss Fanning, as he usually did, he hissed out like a serpent. You tell Birchill I want to see him tomorrow, and I'll come to the flat about nine o'clock. Tell him an old friend named Field wants to see him. Don't forget the name, Field. Then he locked the gate and was gone before I could speak a word. I gave Fred his message next morning. I wish to God that I hadn't, she continued. I asked Fred not to keep the appointment, but he insisted on doing so. He said that he and Field had been good friends in the jail, and that Field had told him that if he ever got on to anything he would let him know. He seemed quite pleased at the idea of meeting Field again. 
I told him to beware that Field wasn't laying a trap for him, but he wouldn't listen to me. Sure enough, Field, or Hill as he calls himself now, did come over that evening, and I let him in myself. I took him into the sitting room where Fred was, and I sat down in a corner of the room pretending to read a book, so that I could hear what our visitor had to say. But the cunning old devil whispered something to Fred, and Fred came over to me and asked if I'd mind leaving them alone for half an hour. I didn't mind so much, because I knew I could get it all out of Fred after Hill had gone. He remained shut up with Fred for nearly two hours, and then I heard Fred letting him out of the front door. Fred came in to me, and I soon got the strength of it all from him. What do you think Hill had come for? To get Fred to burgle Sir Horace's house. And Fred had agreed to do it. I cried and I stormed and went into hysterics. But he wouldn't budge. You know how obstinate he can be when he likes. He said that Hill had told him there was a good haul to be picked up. Sir Horace was going to Scotland for the shooting, and the servants were to be sent to his country house, so the coast would be clear. Hill was to leave everything right at Riversbrook on the afternoon of the 18th of August, and he was to come across to the flat and let Fred know. Hill came as he promised, but as soon as he came in I could see that something had happened. The first words he said were that Sir Horace had returned unexpectedly from Scotland. I was glad to hear it, for I thought that meant that there would be no burglary. I said as much to Fred, and he would have agreed with me, but that devil Hill was too full of cunning. Of course, if you're frightened, we'd better call it off, he said. Fred had been drinking during the day, and you know what he's like when he's had a little too much. I was never frightened of any job yet, he said, and I'd do this job tonight if the house was full of rossers. Hill pretended that he wasn't particular whether the thing came off or not that night, but all the while he kept egging Fred on to do it. Oh, I can see now what his game was. In spite of all I could do or say, it was arranged that Fred should go over and see if it was quite safe to carry out the job. Hill said he thought Sir Horace was going out that night and wouldn't be home until the early morning. About nine o'clock Fred went off, leaving Hill and me alone in the flat together. How I wish now that I had killed him when I had such a good chance! We sat there, scarcely speaking, and heard the clock strike the hours. After midnight I began to get restless, for I thought something must have happened to Fred. Hill said in a low voice, "'It's time Fred was back.' The words were scarcely out of his mouth when I heard Fred step outside, and I ran to let him in. He came in as white as a sheet. Fred, I cried as soon as I saw him, there is some blood on your face. He didn't answer a word until he had taken a big drink of whiskey out of the decanter. Then he said in a whisper, Sir Horace Fewbanks has been murdered. Murdered, cried Hill, leaping up from his chair. He can act well, I can tell you. My God, Fred, you don't mean it. 
"'He's dead, I tell you,' replied Fred fiercely. "'I thought, and at the time I suppose Hill thought, "'that Fred had shot him either accidentally "'or in order to escape capture. "'He seemed to guess what we were thinking, "'for he swore that he had nothing to do with it. "'Sir Horace was dead on the floor when he got there. "'He told us all that had happened. "'When he got to Riversbrook he found lights burning on the ground floor.' He jumped over the fence at the side and hid in the garden. He was there only a few minutes when he saw the lights go out. Then the front door was slammed and a woman walked down the garden path to the gate. "'A woman!' exclaimed Kemp. "'Yes, a woman. Why not? She had been to see Sir Horace, one of his society mistresses. I'll bet it was on her account that he came back from Scotland.' "'What time was this?' he asked with interest. "'About half-past ten, replied the girl. "'And this woman, this lady, turned out the lights and closed the front door?' "'So Fred says. "'Of course he thought Sir Horace had done it, "'but he found out later that Sir Horace was dead.' "'I can't understand it,' said Kemp. "'What was she doing there?' If she found the man dead, why didn't she inform the police? Now, wait a minute. She'd be afraid to do that if she was a society woman. It might be her who killed him, said the girl. Does Fred think that? asked Kemp, looking at her closely. Fred doesn't know what to think, she replied. But it must have been this woman or Hill who killed him. I feel sure myself that it was Hill. This woman puzzles me, said Kemp thoughtfully. She must have been a cool hand if she went round turning out the lights after finding his dead body. About half past ten, you said. That is as near as Fred can make it. Go on with your story, he said. I'm interested in this. You were saying that Fred saw the lights go out. "'And then this woman came out of the house and walked away?' "'Well, Fred got into the house through one of the windows at the side. "'The one Hill had told him to try,' continued the girl. "'But first of all he waited about half an hour in the garden, "'so as to give Sir Horace time to go to sleep. "'He was able to find his way about the house, as Hill had given him a plan.' He felt his way upstairs, and finding a door open, he went into the room and flashed his electric torch. By its light he saw Sir Horace Fewbanks lying huddled up in a corner, with a big pool of blood beside him on the floor. He felt him to see if he was dead. The body was quite warm, but it was limp. Sir Horace was dead. Fred says he lost his nerve and ran for it as hard as he could. He rushed downstairs and out of the house and got back to the flat as fast as he could. The three of us sat there, shaking with fear and wondering what to do. Hill was the first to recover himself. In his cunning, plausible way, he pointed out that it was altogether unlikely that suspicion would fall on Fred or him. All we had to do was to keep quiet and say nothing. Then we'd have no awkward questions put to us. It was his suggestion that we should send an anonymous letter to Scotland Yard telling them that Sir Horace had been murdered. 
that would be much better he said than leaving the body there until he went over and found it when he had to go over to riversbrook to take a look round in accordance with the instructions that had been given him when sir horace went to scotland knowing what he did he was afraid that if he was allowed to discover the body and inform the police he would let something slip when the police came at him with their hundreds of questions we printed the letter to scotland yard each one doing a letter at a time hill took it with him saying he would post it on his way home when he left fred and i sat there thinking suddenly it came to me as clear as daylight that hill had committed the murder and had fixed up things so as to throw suspicion on fred he must have known sir horace was coming back from scotland that night and he had laid in wait for him and shot him then he had come over to my flat in order to persuade fred to carry out the burglary and direct suspicion to fred for the murder if the police worried him i told fred what i thought but he only laughed at me and said i was talking nonsense but i was right for a week afterwards the police came and arrested fred at the flat how did they get him asked kemp i saw them coming along the street from the window and i pointed them out to fred he tried to get away through the kitchen window along the ledge and down the spouting he almost got away but one of the detectives saw him before he reached the ground and they dashed downstairs and got him in the street next day i saw in the papers that hill had made an important statement to the police and this had led to fred's arrest hill is the murderer kincher the cunning wicked treacherous villain told the police about fred being up there he wants to see fred hang in order to save his own neck the girl's voice rose to a shriek and she sprang to her feet with blazing eyes kincher she cried you've got to help me put the rope round this wretch's neck do you hear me kemp's impassivity was in marked contrast to the girl's hysterical excitement what do you want me to do he asked fred wants you to get up an alibi for him he sent me over to ask you to arrange it without delay he wants you and two or three others to swear that he was over here on the night of the murder that will be sufficient to get him off not me said kemp shaking his head decidedly i won't do it it's too risky the police have too many things against me for my word to be any good as a witness i'd only be landing myself in trouble for perjury instead of helping fred out of trouble he ought to have got an alibi ready before he was arrested i told him at the inquest that he ought to look after it and he swore he'd not been up there on the night of the murder it is too late to do anything in the alibi line now i don't know anybody i could get to come forward and swear fred was in their company that night there is a difference between fixing up a tale for the police before a man's arrested and going into the witness box and committing perjury on oath he spoke in such an uncompromising tone that the girl saw it was useless to pursue the matter further suppose i went to the police and told them that hill is the murderer she suggested kemp shook his head slowly 
There is only your word for it that Hill killed him, he said. It doesn't look to me as if he did, when he went over to your flat and told Fred that Sir Horace had come back from Scotland. If he had killed him, he would have let Fred go over without saying a word about it. Oh, that was part of his cunning, said the girl. If he had said nothing about Sir Horace's return, Fred would have suspected him when he found the dead body. I am as certain that Hill committed the murder as if I had seen him do it with my own eyes. Kemp shrugged his shoulders as though realizing the uselessness of attempting to combat such a feminine form of reasoning. Didn't Fred say that the body was warm when he touched it? he asked. She meditated a moment over this evidence of Hill's innocence. "'Well, if Phil didn't kill him, the woman Fred saw leaving the house must have done so,' she declared. "'There is something in that,' said Kemp. "'Look here, we've got to get Fred a good lawyer to defend him, and we must be guided by his advice as to what is the best thing to do.' He knows more about what will go down with the jury than you do. I paid a solicitor to defend him at the police court, said the girl. But the money I gave him was thrown away. He said nothing, and did nothing. That shows he's a man who knows his business, replied Kemp. What's the good of talking to police court beaks in a case that is bound to go to trial? It's a waste of breath. The thing is to see that Fred is properly defended when the case come on at the old bailey. We want somebody who can manage the jury. I should say Hollymead is the man, if you can get him. I don't know as he'd be likely to take up the case, for he don't go in much for criminal courts, and yet it seems to me that he might. You ought to try to get him at least. He used to be a friend of your friend Sir Horace, so if he took up the case, it would look as if he believed Fred had nothing to do with the murder. It would be bound to make a good impression on the jury. Wouldn't it be very expensive? asked the girl. Not so expensive as getting hanged, said Kemp grimly. You take my advice and have him, if you can get him. Never mind what he costs, if you can raise the money. You've got some money saved up, haven't you? Yes, I've nearly two hundred pounds. Sir Horace put hundred pounds in the savings bank for me on my last birthday. And the furniture at the flat is mine. I'd sell that and everything I've got for Fred's sake. That is the way to talk, said Kemp. You go to this solicitor you had at the police court and tell him you want Hollymead to defend Fred. Tell him he must brief Hollymead. Have nobody else but Hollymead. Tell him that Hollymead was a friend of Sir Horace Fewbanks, and that if he appears for the Fred, the jury will never believe that Fred had anything to do with the murder. And I don't think he had though he did lie to me and swear he hadn't been up there that night. He added, after a moment's reflection. End of chapter 13 of The Hampstead Mystery 
by John Watson and Arthur Rees. Read by Lars Rolander.